afternoon and welcome to Incorporating Genomic Testing for Prostate Cancer into Your Practice, presented by the AUA. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so we can continuously improve our programs. We thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I'd like to go over a few items so you know how to participate in today's event. First, I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Joseph Wagner, for planning an excellent educational course. We thank you for your dedication and commitment to urologic education. Thank you as well to our faculty for their time, talent, and expertise for today's program. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates these other activities, live virtual activities and in enduring materials for a maximum of two AMA PRA category one credits. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on the AUA 2021 site immediately following the live program today. As the AUA continues to develop virtual education that meets your needs, we welcome your feedback regarding both the content and format of this activity. Please visit AUA2021.org to complete your evaluations and credit claim. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit AUA2021.org to view faculty, education council, and COI review workgroup disclosures. This activity is meant to be educational in nature and in some instances reflects the opinions of the presenters. The information does not guarantee accuracy of claims submitted. Please verify the accuracy of individual medical claims submitted and please follow individual insurer's rules. The American Urological Association would like to thank Amgen, Estellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck, Pfizer, and Sanofi Genzyme for their generous support of this educational program. It is now my pleasure to introduce our course director, Dr. Joseph Wagner. Dr. Wagner has served as the Director of Robotic Surgery of Hartford Healthcare since 2003 and is currently the Chairman of the Department of Urology at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. In 2001, Dr. Wagner performed some of the first robotic urologic surgeries in the United States. He has published numerous peer-reviewed manuscripts, abstracts, and book chapters. It is now my pleasure to turn this over to Dr. Wagner. Great, thanks, Barbara. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, or depending on your location, good morning. I'd like to welcome you all and thank you all for attending our course. Uh, we've done a lot of hard work. We hope it's a valuable two hours for you and appreciate your time or uh, taking time out of your weekend and spending it with us. It's 81 degrees and sunny in Hartford. So like I said, we're gonna do everything we can to make this a valuable two hours uh, for you. So the learning objectives, we'd like to describe the seminal validation studies for prostate cancer genomic testing. We're going to list the different prognostic endpoints provided by various genomic tests. We'll identify appropriate genomic testing based on a patient's unique clinical characteristics. And during all this, we're going to review AUA and NCCN guidelines for genomic testing for prostate cancer. 
All right, I'd like to now introduce our faculty. Very exciting to have really what I consider the two top authorities on this subject in urology. The first is Dr. Matthew Cooperberg. He is a professor of urology as well as epidemiology and biostatistics at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, where he is the co-leader of the prostate program. He graduated from Dartmouth, where he finished summa cum laude with a degree in English. He obtained his MD and MPH at Yale, completed his residency in urology and fellowship in urologic oncology at UCSF. At the end of his training, Dr. Cooperborg joined his uh, colleagues at UCSF. He maintains a busy clinical practice at UCSF as well at the cancer, as the cancer Center and San Francisco VA Medical Center, where he serves as the chief of urology. Dr. Dan Lin is a professor and chief of urologic oncology in the Department of Urology. He is the director of the Institute for Prostate Cancer Research and holds the Pritt Family Endowed Chair in Prostate Cancer Research at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Dr. Lin re uh, received his undergraduate degree from Stanford and his medical degree from Vanderbilt. He completed his urology residency at the University of Washington and urologic oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. This was followed by an AFUD Physician Scholar Award at the Fred Hutchinson uh, Cancer Research Set, uh, Center. Also, Dr. David Penson was supposed to be on our faculty today. He unfortunately, or fortunately, had a bar mitzvah in the Midwest and, and couldn't be with us. Aaron, uh, my slides, I don't know if they're advancing. There we go. All right, so for the course outline, I'll be reviewing um, the sort of overall shape of the course, as well as some background information. Dr. Cooperberg is going to talk to us about pre-diagnostic markers, as, long as, as well as germline testing. Dr. Lynn and I will be talking about genomic testing at the time of diagnosis. I'm going to be stepping in for Dr. Penson and talking about genomic testing post-radical prostatectomy. Dr. Lin's going to lead our discussion with a uh, case participate, uh, audience participation. And then finally, again, we're going to answer questions along the way. So please use the discussion sections and chat box boxes uh, during the course. So overview and background. First, it's very important to understand the differences between somatic and germline mutations. Germline mutations are contained within the germinal tissue and can be passed off to children. So some may have the mutations, some may not. Somatic mutations occur in the organ of interest. So in our discussion today, that'll be the prostate. So germline tests examine mutations that are inherited from either parent and are present in each cell. Genomic tests examine somatic mutations in the tumor itself. Now, sometimes these are referred to as molecular tests and assays. And I think this really has gotten messy, messy because a lot of the definitions overlap. Some of these tests that are lumped into this category aren't even looking at mutations at all. So examples would be confirmed MDX, which looks at hypermethylation, certainly turning on and off genes. There is exosome DX, which looks at extracellular vesicle RNA, and there are various protein tests as well. So today we're mostly going to be talking about the steps between really first biopsy and post-treatment, not going to be talking about advanced disease, but this is just to give you an idea of the fact that genomic testing is going to play a role in every step 
of prostate cancer diagnosis and treatment as we move forward. So a quick review of biochemistry 101. DNA is in the nucleus. It gets transported into the cytoplasm where it is transcribed into RNA. RNA is then translated into proteins. And then there can be post-translational protein modifications, phosphorylation, et cetera, et cetera. And there are tests looking at each of these um, steps in this pathway. And it's really the proteins that are the end effector, the things that result in Gleason score, PSA, et cetera, et cetera. So an example of a DNA test would be IMPACT. That's a test that we use uh, through our affiliation with Memorial Sloan Kettering. A lot of the genomic tests such as Oncotype are RNA-based tests. And then some of the tests are protein-based um, such as Promark. And there are advantages and disadvantages of examining each of these steps. So why do we need genomic testing? Well, up until this time, we're really using PSA, clinical stage, histopathology, tumor volume, PSA density, some other clinical factors, and risk stratifying our patients. So examples of those would be CAPRA tables, PARTN tables, Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, nomograms, or NCCN risk stratification. But the problem, as we all know, is that there are significant rates of upgrading and downgrading, as well as upstaging and downstaging. And a recent study in European urology showed that 30.3% of men with favorable intermediate risk disease are upgraded or upstaged. So this is a study that we did at our institution shortly after the NCCN listed uh, active surveillance as an option for favorable intermediate risk disease. So I took my last 3,000 uh, radical prostatectomies. I lumped very low and low risk um, men together as well as favorable intermediate risk and unfavorable intermediate risk as a comparison. And what we looked at was what's the risk of adverse pathology and what was my PSA recurrence rate within five years. When you compare that to low risk, obviously it's a bit higher, but we felt was acceptable for appropriately selected men and quite a bit of difference um, when you compare them to unfavorable intermediate risk disease. So the upshot of this was with appropriate counseling, it seemed to us based on our results that it was appropriate to recommend or, uh, active surveillance as an option for men with favorable intermediate risk disease. And I think our rate of 27.4% of adverse pathology is obviously very close to the 30.3% from the recently published uh, study in European urology. So currently, genomic testing really plays a role at almost every risk stratification for a man that you're seeing with uh, clinically localized disease. So it's important that we're all familiar with these tests. And there are also tests that can play a role post-prostatectomy. Today, we're going to be talking later on about Decipher and Prolaris in this arena. So as you're listening to the speakers today, um, here are some thoughts that I would just put forth. First, we chose Prolaris, Decipher, Oncotype, and Promark as our topics of conversation because they're specified in NCCN guidelines, but there are others available. And as you're listening, try to decide what endpoint is more useful to you. What do you think would be more helpful to your patient? Are they interested in prostate cancer-specific mortality, the risk of adverse pathology, you use these things to sort of guide your uh, treatment decision recommendations. Understand that there is no best test. 
So we did a quick study a few years ago where I looked at 22 men who, for whatever reason, had more than one genomic test. So one man had Prolaris and Decipher, another Oncotype and Prolaris, et cetera. And what I found is there's roughly 70% agreement between the tests. Uh, when they don't agree, Prolaris was a little bit more apt to support active surveillance than was Oncotype or Decipher, but that doesn't make any one test better or more useful uh, than the other. And also while you're listening to these presentations, think about your prostate cancer volume. So are you more comfortable with one test that you really understand well and can apply to your patients? Or would you rather change your test recommendation be, uh, depending on the clinical uh, scenario? So uh, with that, I'm going to turn over the podium uh, to Dr. Cooperberg, who's going to be talking to us about uh, a genomic testing at diagnosis as well as germline testing. Thanks, Matt. Good morning. I'm Matt Kuperberg. Um, it's really a pleasure to be with you this morning, this afternoon. Um, and I'm going to give two back-to-back -back talks, one fo both focused on the pre-treatment space. Uh, first, looking at the pre-diagnostic setting uh, before prostate cancer is actually identified and then stepping back a little bit and focusing on the germline. So to dive in, you know, anything that we're gonna talk about in terms of pre-diagnostic markers uh, for prostate cancer, we really have to start with PSA, which I would argue is probably the best liquid marker in the history of oncology, which I realize sounds like a strange statement given how controversial it's been. But the fact is we just haven't used it very well as a screening test um, in the real world. And that's not just us in urology, that's also primary care. Uh, we have tended as a country, as a national practice, to overscreen older and frailer men, to underscreen young and healthy men. And in turn, we've overtreated low risk disease and undertreated high risk prostate cancer. Um, you know, and part of the problem is that PSA really does not have a threshold. This 4.0 that is still kind of out there in the vernacular um, um, has really been a, a big part of the problem in terms of implementing PSA. Now, despite all these problems, we've driven down mortality rates by over 50%. So imagine if we use PSA optimally, you know, just how much further progress we could make. And we need to keep this in mind because any putative additional marker needs to be held against the existing gold standard. Uh, and just to emphasize this point about 4.0, we've become big advocates for early baseline testing, meaning checking PSA among men in their 40s and 50s before there's a lot of BPH, a lot of mud in the water, so to speak, in terms of interpreting um, the PSA result. And you have to understand that in men in these age groups, the medians here are really in the 0.9 uh, uh, range, give or take, even a little bit lower. And that the top 10 percentile, which is where we can make predictions as far as prostate cancer mortality, is defined by far lower rates, uh, really more like 1.7, 1.8 for men in their 40s and 50s. So with that background, uh, Dr. Wagner already showed an earlier version of this slide. You know, in 2021, we have more biomarkers than we even know what to do with in prostate cancer. Uh, and the imaging tests, MRI and PET in particular, really play in the same space. We're gonna be focusing in this section of the talk on the pre-diagnostic space again. So what to do before a first biopsy or second biopsy. Um, here we have a set of liquid uh, tests looking at both urine and blood, as well as the confirmed MBX test already alluded to, uh, which looks at the tissue of a apparently negative biopsy. Now, again, 
any marker that we want to actually bring into practice has to improve on a multivariable gold standard. This is true of both the pre-diagnostic and the post-diagnostic tests. So just beating PSA is actually not good enough. Just beating the MCCN risk groups, for example, in the post-diagnostic space is not good enough. We need to be able to show that we can do better than all the information we have for free at the point of care. And it's critical that the methodology underlying the studies bringing these tests to market be very high quality, or you can very easily get into trouble with false discovery. And the final critical point to emphasize here in the pre-diagnostic space is that we don't need to find more prostate cancer. The point of a pre-diagnostic screening test is not identifying cancer, it's identifying potentially lethal disease, which we usually define as grade group two or higher. So these are the tests currently on the, on the market um, available to consider before use of a first biopsy. And I will run through these. Um, and just to emphasize the point about multivariable, this is the PCPT risk calculator. And there's a few like this on the market. This integrates the PSA together with parameters like race, family history, DRE findings to give a really nice, I think, teaching tool, the Smilogram, to help a man make an educated decision. Um, and it shows not just the likelihood of prostate cancer, but the likelihood of high-grade disease. And Ian Thompson, years ago, who, who developed this tool, has made the comment that you can show an educated man the same likelihood of high-grade disease. He may choose to get a biopsy or not get a biopsy. Those are both good decisions, as long as it's an educated decision. So what are the markers available here? So the first is the PCA3. This is looking at uh, one single full-length mRNA in the urine. It does have improved specificity for identifying prostate cancer over PSA alone. It's been less consistent as a predictor of high-grade disease. And for this reason, I think it has fallen out of use somewhat. Um, I would also make the point here though, that PCA3 really works best as a two threshold test, just like PSA actually. So PCA3 below a low threshold has a very good negative predictive value above a high threshold has a very good positive predictive value. And in between, there's a lot of gray areas. So part of the reason it never really took off was that there are a lot of gray zone cases and finding a single threshold really never worked. PCA3 is combined with uh, TEPRS2 ERG in another test called the Michigan Prostate Score, although this is, I think, has limited availability commercially. 4K and PHI are two blood tests which look at isoforms of PSA that are a little bit more specific for high-grade prostate cancer. The 4K on the left, looks at PSA together with free PSA, intact PSA, and HKT, human calicrine 2, which is basically a cousin of PSA. And it's an algorithm which integrates these with age and DRE family history and gives a percent likelihood of high grade disease. The phi test looks at PSA, free PSA, and minus two pro PSA in the formula shown here. And this comes out as just a number. Uh, these are both blood tests. They're both routinely available uh, commercially. There's only been one study comparing them uh, directly head to head. And the bottom line is they both do similarly. So the AUC is the area under the ROC curve for both are comparable comparing a base multivariable model to a multivariable model, including the calicrine panels. You can look at this graphically. When we look at these ROC curves, you wanna see the curves up and to the left showing a better prediction across a range of test results. And they look similarly, 4K in the green in each graph and phi test in the red in each graph. Um, I will say in our practice at UCSF, we tend to use the 4K more than the PHI because it does integrate the other clinical factors and because the report is a little bit more actionable in this predicted likelihood of high-grade disease. And I will, make, I will make the general comment that applies through all the talks we're going to hear today, that there's a tremendous amount of science that goes into the uh, development of the biology and development of these tests. The reports tend to be, honestly, developed by marketing divisions and focus groups, and there's actually a lot of science to be done, a lot of work to be done. 
in terms of the optimal way of presenting results of all these genomic tests to the patients and, and of course to you all in your clinical practice. And some of the tests I think do get into trouble just with the way the tests are actually reported um, and, and reflected on the, on the paper readout. So moving on, Select MVX is a more recent urine test. This looks at two different full-length uh, messenger RNAs, HOXC6 and DLX1. In the urine, it does require a digital rectal exam um, before the test, before the urine is collected. Um, this one has really is one of the first ones that's really calibrated for a very high negative predictive value. And this has been the trend with the pre-diagnostic tests. So if you have a negative select MVX test, the readout is that the patient is somewhere between 95 and 98% likely to not have a high-grade cancer and can therefore confidently avoid going forward with a prostate biopsy. Now, if the test is positive, maybe he has a significant cancer, maybe he doesn't. Again, the calibration here is really for high-grade disease. Uh, the most recent is the ExoDX. This is another urine test. Uh, this is slightly different in that it looks at, again, full-length messenger RNA. In this case, we're back to PCA3 um, and, um, and sorry, um, temperature 2 fusion. But because it's looking at the exosomal components of the urine, these are RNAs which are actually secreted by the cell rather than just reflecting random cell breakdown. This does not require a DRE, and they actually have a recent home kit, which has been particularly valuable under the COVID lockdown. Um, so again, the calibration here, the, the, the science around the development of the test is really for prediction of high-grade prostate cancer, and like the others, shows an improvement in in the ROC curve characteristics compared to a multivariable clinical model alone. The blue one here is that PCPT risk calculator that I showed before. These curves are up and to the left, again, improving on the clinical gold standard. Now, we have very few head-to-head -head comparisons across these. I think they're all, they all have a role. Um, and, and it's to an extent, I think it's dealer's choice which one we actually use. Now, what about MRI? This is absolutely playing in the same space. And there's a lot of advocates out there in the UK in particular that MRI is a good reflex test for men with, with an elevated PSA. And in fact, in the UK and in other contexts, you do not get a PSA, you're not gonna process biopsy unless you have a positive MRI. Well, the problem here is that MRI actually does not have a great negative predictive value for high-grade prostate cancer. This is from the PROMISE trial, which is one of the best uh, prospective trials out there. And this showed a negative predictive value of 76% for finding Gleason grade group two or higher. So MRI as a reflex test missed about 25% of the grade two or higher, grade group two or higher cancers. And for this reason, I do not really support it as a reflex test. I think it's, it's got a terrific role for improving biopsy, uh, but not necessarily replacing biopsy, especially compared to uh, some of the other liquid tests that are out there. And the other problem with MRI, again, which does need to be considered as a biomarker in place in the same space, are these problems with inter-observer variation. This is a report from the NCI, from one of the best MR centers in the country, in the world, frankly. Um, and what this study showed was that for the index lesion, the HH column here are two very high volume prostate-focused radiologists at the NIH. If you're just looking at the index lesion just for pyrides four or higher, yeah, they've got very good agreement. But the more typical case, if you look at the medium volume radiologists, now again, at the NCI, very good uh, case scenario here, Index lesion pyrites for higher, not bad, but if you get into the overall likely, uh, the overall scenario of pyrides scoring for all lesions, uh, the overall agreement was down 58%. And for the non-subspecialist radiologists, it's actually not that much better than a coin flip. 
Another similar study out of Stanford, which is the high volume uh, MRI center for prostate cancer, the likelihood of having a grade group two or higher biopsy on a PIRADS-5 called uh, MRI on a fusion biopsy ranged from 40% to 80%, depending on which radiologist happened to make the call. And I believe this interobserver variation problem is a critical problem, which we need to solve before we can think about MRI as a good reflex test. Most recently, there was a great trial, a great study out of, out of NIH um, showing that if we did targeted biopsies only ignoring the systematic, uh, we would be missing substantial rates of high-grade cancer, including a not trivial number of grade group three or higher cancers. Um, and the fact is too, ultrasound is actually a very good diagnostic modality. We should not be abandoning. We did a recent study at UCSF showing that the maximum Gleason score is identified by MRI alone, really in a pretty small proportion of the cases. And a well-performed ultrasound is just as good. And we do not, we should, you know, this concept that the ultrasound is a good way to find the prostate, not the cancer, really is outdated thinking. Uh, and at the end of the day, these liquid markers uh, do have a better negative predictive value for high-grade cancers than does MRI compared to the 75% for MR. Uh, the liquid markers, um, the urine tests in particular, do substantially better. Select MDX again, up to 98%. ExoDX up to 96%. Now, which one we do, like I said, is, is really, there's a lot of discretion here. We have become big fans of the EXO test in the COVID lockdown because it's now an at-home urine kit. And this was kind of fortuitous timing on the part of the company um, in a time where we really wanted folks staying away from even labs, let alone uh, physicians' offices. This is now a test that can be sent to the patient where they just pee in the cup and send it in. Um, and there's obviously a clear advantage there, uh, particularly in, in this era. Uh, and I really need to stress that just like PSA, none of these tests is truly binary. I think everybody wants the prostate cancer markers to behave as pregnancy tests. Turns blue, get a biopsy. Turns blue, take out the prostate. You know, it's never that easy. This is the situation that we are really dealing with. You know, these are not black and white. These are shades of gray. The markers help us say what are the slightly light, lighter versus the slightly darker shades of gray in terms of risk. And it's our job to present this information and reflect it back to the men in ways that help them make better informed decisions, but these are never going to be as easy as telling us what to do. And I think the decision-making is getting much more complicated. And, and where, where we really need to think about is the sequencing and the interaction now with imaging and markers. So, and, and there, are, there are lots of different ways to think about this. Do we go based on an elevated PSA to an MRI followed by a biopsy? Do we use marker instead and go to biopsy? Do we get a marker and only get MRI in the patients with an elevated marker and use that to decide to go forward with biopsy? We can flip that or we can get both and make decisions. And I think there are arguments for and against each one of these pathways. And the specific decision-making really does need to be tailored and refined. And it's not always gonna be the, the same for every patient. I'll tell you the one that we do most commonly at UCSF is the one circled here, uh, where we do we are advocating with our primary care physicians. And this does require really close engagement with primary care because the initial steps all live with them. So we've got a, a pathway in place now where we are advocating for screening even at the primary care level. We have a low threshold to consider further evaluations. So for a PSA over two for younger men, for a PSA over three for older men, or even at lower thresholds for men with family history, African-American men, et cetera, we think about getting a, a secondary liquid marker test like 4K or XODX or SelectMDX. Um, and then for men with uh, with positive markers, those are the ones who we refer for MRI and fusion biopsy. But like I said, there are lots of different ways to skin this cat and slice and dice and combine these different treatments. 
So to sum up this section of the course, you know, the optimal use of PSA testing, the optimal, optimal PSA screening, one component of that really does or should include, uh, first of all, early baseline testing with a low threshold, much lower than 4.0, more like 1.0, to consider further evaluation. But the further evaluation then should uh, include biomarkers, liquid tests and or MR, uh, used liberally to try to decide who needs to go forward with a biopsy. MRI can help with biopsy decision, but so can trust. And trust is at least as good in many instances as MR in terms of identifying index lesions. Uh, these blood and urine tests um, have been validated with very good negative predictive value for high-grade disease and really should be considered as, as excellent reflex tests to help us optimize PSA testing, help us find only the cancers that need to be treated. So with that, I will dive right into the next part of the course, which is germline testing. And this is perhaps even stepping back a stage from the PSA screening conversation uh, to really talk about uh, who needs to think about prostate cancer differently based on their genetic heritage. Uh, you already saw the slide from Dr. Wagner uh, in terms of the differences between somatic and germline. And I think the space in germline testing is really heating up now slightly in terms of who should be thinking about PSA screening, uh, but more so because the results of these tests are really helping us think about how to manage prostate cancer, especially when we get into the advanced disease space. Uh, the two documents which I highly recommend here, one is the Philadelphia Consensus. This was uh, first published in 2018, updated with the second conference in 2020. And the second is an NCCN document specifically focused on germline testing for men with prostate cancer. Uh, so the Philadelphia Consensus Statement recently updated recommendations on a whole set of candidate genes. And I'll dive into these um, in a little bit more detail later in this, in this talk. Uh, the, you know, a lot of the focus really has been in BRCA2 and in ATM, to a lesser extent BRCA1, but there's a whole, a whole host of other genes which are increasingly the subject of, of interest for, for prostate cancer. The evidence is clearly strongest for BRCA2 in its association, not just with prostate cancer risk, but the risk of aggressive and metastatic disease. Um, and the recommendations for who should consider germline testing have become broader and broader and broader over the years. And, you know, we've gone from only men with early metastatic disease or very strong family history to anybody uh, with very strong family history to anybody with high risk disease. Um, and now the recommendations are pretty much anyone with high or very high risk disease by the NCCN criteria and consider testing even for men with lower risk disease if they do have a strong family history. Um, and these are the, the family history considerations here. So certainly any family history of germline mutations uh, like BRCA or Lynch syndrome, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, um, strong family history. Okay, every guy with, everybody with prostate cancer has an uncle or a grandfather who was diagnosed at 86 and didn't need treatment. That's not really the family history we're talking about. It's, it's first degree relatives, especially those diagnosed early or anyone in the family that died of prostate cancer. Um, if there are more than three cancers on the same side of the family, this is what defines truly familial prostate cancer. And those people really should consider screening as early as 40 or even earlier in, in rare cases. The men whose relatives died in their 50s really should be testing in their 30s. Um, so a lot of the genes that I've, I've shown on these lists are related to DNA repair mechanisms. Um, and this uh, falls into two broad categories among, among several others. On the left are the mismatch repair genes. These are the genes which can edit uh, fairly routine mistakes in the processes of, of DNA replication. On the right are the homologous recombination genes. These are the ones which respond to double-stranded DNA breaks. 
uh, following uh, you know, radiation exposures, uh, oxidative stress, et cetera, where the, where the DNA actually breaks and needs to be reread based on the corresponding copy of the chromosome. Um, and this is where the BRCA and ATM um, and related mechanism really comes into play. And this, of course, is related to the new class of medications, um, the PARP inhibitors that we'll get to in a minute. So the harder we look, the more of these mutations we are finding among men with prostate cancer. We've known for years that prostate cancer is one of the most heritable cancers out there. It's just taken a long time to find the smoking guns because none of these is a single smoking, uh, a, a, a single major driver of a high proportion of cancers the way the BRCA genes are in breast, breast cancer, for example. So in a couple of big studies, which have come out over the last few years, uh, these are relatively reliable numbers. 12% of men with metastatic prostate cancer have germline DNA repair mutations. Um, and if you look at men with localized disease, about 6% of, of localized high-risk disease, about 6% of men have a germline mutation. And the breakdown is shown here. Again, almost a majority of them are BRCA2, and most of the remainder are counted by ATM, CHEC2, and BRCA1. And then there's all the, the less common players, but the less common ones do add up to 25% here. Um, and of course, there's a lot that we're not identifying, right? Um, so again, this being one of the most heritable cancers, this is a polygenic inheritance pattern, um, which means that there's still a huge amount of the generic her genetic heritage here that we still do not understand. Um, so the in terms of men with lower risk uh, localized disease, we're not finding known germline mutations in many in uh, that many of the men. Uh, but again, we know these cancers are inherited, which means there are other genetic factors or potentially metagenetic factors, meaning not errors in the DNA, but changes in the way that the DNA is actually expressed uh, that do run in families, which we are not, uh, which we're not able to determine based on our current sequencing paradigms. Now, these mutations are starting to become actionable, especially for men with advanced disease. So there's increasing, in, uh, increasing recognition that men who have uh, mutations in the homologous recombination genes, so the BRCA genes are, again, the, the key uh, uh, prototypes here, are potentially uh, particularly susceptible to both platinum-based chemotherapy and to PARP inhibitors. Now, this is true of cancers which are arising in men with germline um, homologous recombination deflect, defects uh, in the genes or tumors which acquired these defects uh, somatically in the course of the oncogenesis and uh, mutations that the tumors pick up as uh, oncogenesis proceeds. Uh, conversely, those who have errors in the DNA mismatch repair genes might be particularly susceptible to, uh, to checkpoint inhibitors. Now, should we handle these cancers differently? Well, it's very clear that BRCA tumors are more aggressive on average. This is a nice uh, study from Elena Castro's group from a number of years ago, looking at men with metastatic disease. And those who those tumors arising in men with uh, germline BRCA gene mutations have a much higher likelihood of progressing to metastasis uh, than those who do not. Um, but there is still the question, is this actionable? A more recent study out of the Johns Hopkins cohort Looked at active surveillance in men with BRCA mutations. The top graph here is those with BRCA1 or 2 or ATM. The one at the bottom is BRCA2 alone. And clearly, there is a higher likelihood of progression to higher grade disease and requirement for treatment for men who have BRCA mutations compared to those who don't, um, with the relative risk here of progression being nearly threefold higher for those with BRCA mutations. I think the key question is. 
what do we do with that? Do we tell men with these mutations that they are ineligible for active surveillance? And there are certainly a lot of urologists out there that do make that recommendation based on these types of data. And that's not an, it's not an illegitimate standpoint, um, but I might argue that a 50% risk of upgrading by six years does not necessarily contraindicate active surveillance. And, and I will say in, in my practice, and I think most of us at UCSF, we would tell men in this category, look, you need closer surveillance. It may well be the case that you're going to need treatment in the next few years, but that does not mean, mean that that treatment needs to be today. And as long as we are not missing the window of opportunity for cure uh, for this low-risk prostate cancer, which is still measurable in years, then there is no problem with surveillance as long as that surveillance is relatively close. Um, and as I said, we are now getting further into, uh, into advanced disease tailoring based on results from both germline and somatic uh, mutations. So I think the, the most interest here has been in terms of the PARP inhibitors. Um, I'm gonna briefly run through a couple of the recent studies. Uh, Triton 2 uh, was for men with metastatic disease using uh, rucaparib, uh, showing significantly higher response rates for those with BRCA1 or 2 mutations compared to those who do not. Although, the, I mean, to be very clear, these are not night and day responses. It's not like we're seeing, you know, 90% response in those with mutations and 10% in those who do not have their mutations, which gets to the point, uh, partly that the medications are not entirely specific, but also that we don't have the perfect markers. You know, looking just at the germline or just at sequencing one or two genes um, in the DNA does not mean that we've got the whole picture of how these genes are actually expressed in terms of their biologic effect on the tumor. Uh, and the, the need for better companion diagnostics, getting at this biology is a critical area for future growth here. A profound trial more recently was a, a, a trial using a laparib. Um, looking earlier in the course of disease, this was just progr clinical progression-free survival uh, focused on BRCA1 or 2 or ATM. Uh, again, showing a prolongation of progression-free survival with laparib compared to placebo. Interestingly enough here, there was um, improved uh, outcomes for not just BRCA1 and 2 and ATM, but for the other uh, genes as well. But we also, there were you know, not a small number of responses, even in, in men who did not have an identifiable mutation in one of these genes. Um, again, suggesting the need for uh, better companion diagnostics and a better understanding of the overall biology here. Uh, PARP inhibitors are now being studied in the, you know, even earlier in the hormone sensitive um, setting with the ongoing amplitude trial. This is looking at combination therapy. So abiraterone plus minus niraparib, um, uh, again, focused on the subset of men who have these uh, defects in, in BRCA1. There's a lot of interest in focused uh, analysis of men with uh, using uh, PDL and PD1 inhibitors for those with microsatellite instability and uh, mismatch repair. Again, for those who have errors in the proofreading uh, apparatus, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence and preclinical evidence suggesting better response to pdl one directed treatments in men with these mutations, although this is not yet ready for prime time. And then there are lots of other agents in development which really are being targeted specifically. And I think you know a, a general comment is that our path forward for management of advanced prostate cancer absolutely has to be biologically driven. And the drugs, there are, too, there are now too many drugs. The armamentarium is too rich. And frankly, they're too expensive to make our treatment sequencing decisions about who should get you know, a second AR-directed treatment versus a PARP inhibitor versus uh, chemotherapy based on just a kind of empiric considerations or quote-unquote preferences. 
we really need to be making these treatments based on tumor biology and the evolution of the tumor biology from you know, the germline factors that drive the cancer's development in the first place to the other mutations that are acquired as the cancer progresses and is, and is exposed to different treatments. So these, these you know, and this, this greater understanding of biology in the era that we're entering is really what needs to drive these treatments. And I think we're on the cusp of uh, this actually being uh, the reality as we get into 2021 and beyond. So the question becomes, are we testing enough patients? You know, like I said at the beginning, germline testing is, the, the recommendations for germline testing are, are more and more broad. Although interestingly enough, a recent study here looked at over 3,000 men uh, who had genetic testing done, um, of whom actually a pretty high proportion, 17% were found to have positive germline uh, variants. And interestingly enough, over a third of the men in this cohort would not actually have had a strong indication for germline testing based on the current recommendations. So it may be that we consider testing for even more men as time goes on, uh, because the current recommendations are not quite capturing this. And of course, part of the issue here is not everybody knows their family history. Men are adopted, men are estranged from their families. Um, there are plenty of men out there that actually have strong family histories uh, and just don't know it. Or perhaps there are just not many men in the family. Um, so there's lots of reasons here where our current ascertainment may not be uh, sufficient. Uh, the final question in terms of the pragmatics here, who should actually be doing germline testing? Should it be the urologist? Should it be an oncologist? Should it be a genetic counselor? And I think there's lots of different ways to think about this model, and there's no right answer here. There's no one size fits all. It really depends on your practice environment, your comfort level, what sorts of resources you have access to in your practice in terms of genetic counseling, et cetera. Um, and you know the, the guideline here from the Philadelphia consensus really does allow for various combinations of this. And you know, throughout this whole continuum of discuss PSA testing, referral to genetic counseling, et cetera. Um, uh, and it's important if you're going to do this as part of your own practice, know to know which tests are available. There's lots of different actual clinical tests on the market here, and they have different genes included in them. Most of these are not whole genome or even whole exome sequencing tests. They're focused tests, which look at sets of genes, some of which are relevant to prostate cancer, some of which are relevant to other cancers. Uh, most of them do include the major actors for prostate cancer, ATM, the two BRCAs, CHECK2, uh, and, and most of the minor ones as well, but you should make sure of this before you choose a test to use in practice. Um, and I think it's really an area that you should be familiar with in practice. I will say at UCSF, our practice still is we discuss this with patients and then leave it to the genetic counselors to actually order the test and discuss the results with the patients. But honestly, as the volume of these referrals increases, we are actually on, on the cusp of taking over more of this in the uh, urology and oncology side, because of course, most men that we send for testing have negative results and it's a, it's a quicker conversation. Um, so where you kind of draw that line in terms of referral, I think there are lots of different ways to, to safely and appropriately uh, skin that cat and have that, have that apparatus in place in your practice. So to summarize, I mean, do take a good family history, understanding where those limitations are. Um, we should be identifying appropriate patients uh, who have germline testing based both on, both on history on germline testing and on pathology and somatic testing of the tumors, which can provide additional clues. You should have a good algorithm in your practice for both testing and counseling, pre and post germline testing. Um, and finally, you know, it, it we're clearly, this whole course is, is all about the fact that precision medicine and personalized understanding of biology and personalized management is where all the excitement is and where clinical care really needs to be 
2021, if we are going to continue to make rapid progress in providing better care for our men with prostate cancer across the whole spectrum from PSA testing on through management of advanced disease. Thanks for your attention and we'll look forward to discussion later on. Thanks, Matt. That was a great presentation. And now we're going to move on to genomic testing for prostate cancer into your practice and decipher and uh, promark at the time of diagnosis. So when a man's diagnosed with clinically localized prostate cancer, the first decision is active surveillance versus definitive uh, therapy. And if you've decided on definitive therapy, how intense should that treatment be? How wide are you going at your radical prostatectomy? Are you incorporating ADT with uh, radiation? So as we've already discussed, patients are currently grouped into risk categories based on clinical and pathologic features. And the idea is that genomics adds another layer of information to us as we make these decisions. So every tumor is unique. You can have a tumor that looks fairly indolent by our classical features and yet is aggressive and the other way around as well. So a lot of upstaging, downstaging, as we've discussed, genomics can help clarify the picture. So if we have a gentleman with favorable intermediate risk disease, PSA of 9.4, PIRADS 3 lesion on his MRI, grade group 2 disease, small palpable nodule, uh, low volume disease, and he's favorable intermediate, what's his real risk? You know, we've seen patients really go in either direction with these sort of parameters. So the idea is to take a bunch of these men and further risk stratify them. And this um, sort of picture correlates with the decipher testing. And we're trying to separate these men into high risk, low risk, and intermediate risk groups. And this is just another schematic showing that idea. So when Decipher was designed, um, the endpoint that they decided on was um, metastasis-free survival. And there's a number of different endpoints that one could pick when you're designing a test. Could be overall survival, prostate cancer-specific uh, mortality, metastasis, PSA recurrence, and all those have pluses and minuses as far as their utility as a clinical endpoint. And when you're talking about prostate cancer, the ease of doing the study, obviously a very indolent um, disease. It can take a long time to get mortality data. But Decipher chose metastasis as their endpoint. So it was first developed at Mayo Clinic and they took a bunch of men, some with metastasis, some without. They then obtained uh, prostate cancer tissue from the area of the prostate with the highest Gleason grade, extracted RNA, uh, did a bunch of studies, and eventually came up with 22 genes across seven cancer pathways, and then divided up these men into high, intermediate, and low-risk um, patients for developing prostate cancer metastasis. And when you look at Decipher, the area under the curve for predicting metastasis in a univariate model outperforms NCCN risk groups, and it really performs all the traditional uh, risk groups that are out there, uh, risk um, features, I should say, PSA, stage, Gleason score, NCCN, and CAPRA. And again, important to note, this is in a univariate model. 
And as Matt showed us earlier, it's the area under the curve that's important. The higher the number, uh, the more accurate the test. So this is a typical um, decipher prostate biopsy report. And what you see is the risk stratification over here on the left-hand side. So this patient ended up being high risk with a decipher score of 0 0.80. And then it shows what are the chances that you're going to find adverse pathology at the time of prostatectomy. And if the patient undergoes treatment, what is their risk of having metastasis at five and 10 years? And what's their risk of prostate cancer mortality at 15 years? And obviously, the higher their risk features, probably the more uh, important it is that this patient is treated with uh, definitive uh, therapy. On the second page, it's what I call the sort of American curve. So everybody wants to know where they compare to everybody else that's like them. And as Dr. Cooperberg mentioned, a lot of this stuff is developed by marketing. So these can be helpful. They can also be tough, I think, when you're sitting down with a patient. So what I tell everyone is I'd rather have my kid graduate toward the bottom of their class in Harvard than first at what's a matter you. So you might rather be at the higher end of a curve like this for a low risk patient than you would be at the lower risk of some sort of curve for a high risk patient but it still gives the patient sort of an idea of where they fall compared to a typical patient with their uh, pathologic and clinical parameters. So biopsy, how are we going to do active surveillance? So here's a patient and you order their decipher test and basically you're going to get a result that's high risk, intermediate or low risk. And again, even though these are cut points, it's also you know, shades of gray as we were hearing earlier. There's no true cut point. You have to take into account other clinical parameters, patient's age, comorbidities, uh, and also the traditional uh, pathologic parameters. But a high-risk patient is obviously more apt to undergo and need definitive therapy than a low-risk patient. So this is a study that came out of uh, Cedars-Sinai, UCLA. And what they found is that uh, men with a decipher low risk um, score have a very low likelihood of harboring adverse pathology. And these may be the better candidates for active surveillance. So using a decipher score cutoff of 0.2, the negative predictive value is 96%. I think most people are using a decipher cutoff of 0.45 that separates low from intermediate risk group and the negative predictive value there was 91%. Uh, this study is uh, from Dr. Cooperberg at UCSF. And again, men with clinically low-risk disease by pathologic parameters, when they go on to testing with Decipher, you're going to find a cohort that has a high Decipher risk and who should be considered for definitive therapy. Uh, looking at it another way, since NCCN guidelines now are recommending that we have a discussion about active surveillance for our favorable intermediate risk disease, if you stratify patients by NCCN criteria alone, 9% of our low-risk patients will have adverse pathology, 15% of favorable intermediate risk. And again, this is a little bit on the lower side, I think, when you compare it to the study that, from our institution that I presented and the one from the European Urology, but the take-home message is the same. And that is once you further separate those men by decipher score, 
Men with a low or intermediate risk to Cypher score had a 13% risk of uh, adverse pathology, but it's 41% for the high risk. So lower Decipher score, better candidate for active surveillance. So here's a man with low risk disease, PSA 6.6, .6, grade group one, low volume, low Decipher score. This is a man that I would more strongly consider for active surveillance, but another gentleman, same sort of parameters, slightly lower volume, probably low risk because of his uh, PSA density, but bordering on very low risk, but with a very high Decipher score, that's a gentleman that I would probably recommend definitive therapy for. Now, once you've made the decision for definitive therapy, how much? You know, I'm gonna be honest, I sort of put the Decipher score, Oncotype, Polaris, et cetera, scores into my mental algorithm when I'm doing surgery plays a little bit of a role on, am I doing a nerve spare, how wide, et cetera, um, but not as much as the traditional clinical parameters, but it is playing more and more of a role uh, in our institution. And we're sort of following M uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering's uh, lead and deciding on ADT. So uh, decipher low-risk men might be able to be spared ADT. So this study is from Canada and they looked at their intermediate risk men that were treated with radiation alone. And what they found it was that 73% of their patients had a low Decipher score and none of those developed metastasis, but their intermediate and high risk um, patients went on to develop metastasis in about 20% or so patients. So maybe we spare our low risk Decipher scores, uh, ADT. Looking at it another way, um, these are intermediate and high-risk patients who receive both radiation therapy and short-term ADT. When they classified these men by Decipher, 60% uh, of them were low-risk. Decipher high-risk men had significantly higher rates of metastasis, about 20%. So it might be that high-risk Decipher uh, patients should be receiving a longer ADT course. So, Favorable intermediate risk patient, PSA 5.8, 71, grade group two disease. Uh, his Decipher score is 0 0.30. This might be a patient who we treat with radiation alone. But in this gentleman, similar scores, a high risk score of uh, 0 0.80 on Decipher. He's a gentleman that we would probably recommend a short course of androgen deprivation therapy. You can also apply this to your unfavorable intermediate risks. So PSA 7.9, but now with grade group three disease, but a low Decipher score. Radiation alone, although NCCN guidelines would call for a short course six months or four to six months of ADT. But another gentleman, high Decipher score, six months, maybe even a little bit longer of ADT. So this is a review um, paper that came out of European Urology, if anyone's interested, but multiple studies looking at Decipher, 30,000 patients. I think we're getting some good uh, clinical outcomes to make our decisions using this test. These are some of the ongoing research efforts that are happening. You know, we're currently um, participating in Eradicate here. I'm sure that Dr. Lynn and Cooperberg are uh, participating in some of these as well. And when you're uh, looking at your man with clinically localized prostate cancer, the first thing is, like I said, active surveillance or definitive therapy. So low risk, active surveillance. The higher up you go in the Decipher score, the more you're considering definitive therapy. 
If you decided on radiation therapy, are they going to get radiation therapy alone or radiation therapy with ADT? And if they're going to get ADT, how long of a course? We're getting more and more data that Decipher might help us uh, making these very difficult decisions. So on to Promark. Again, same sort of idea. It's a prognostic test for patients with grade group one and grade group two disease. So not currently approved for grade group three or worse disease. And this test, as opposed to Decipher, which I mentioned is an RNA-based test, this is a protein-based test. So it's an eight protein signature that predicts prostate cancer aggressiveness. Once again, it provides a personal risk of the disease's aggressiveness. It can be used as a standalone indicator or in combination with NCCN risk categories. So Decipher, is more promoted as a univariate, but you can also combine that with NCCN um, risk. And the idea is, again, to more appropriately pick which of our patients are better for active surveillance and which should be treated definitively. So what are the pluses and minuses of an RNA versus a protein test? Well, RNA uh, requires microdissection. So you're diluting out your RNA of your malignant tissue with benign tissue. You can have silencing of RNA with microRNAs, SNPs, et cetera. As I mentioned early on in Biochemistry 101, uh, proteins can have phosphorylations, et cetera, and be changed. Um, proteins are the end effect. You know, PSA is a protein. So the further you look down the pathway, it might be the better information that you're getting on this tumor's behavior. And it, um, the uh, Promark test is a direct measurement on paraffin embedded slides, no microdissection. So when you compare genomic um, to proteomics, requires a little bit less tissue. Again, you're measuring the end effector, which is a protein, and it does address heterogeneity. If a pathologist takes a small snippet of grade group three disease at a margin, and that's what you're analyzing, you don't really have an idea of what's happening in the entire um, pathology slide, if you will. Um, here you're having a staining of the entire slide. So this is an example of what this looks like. And you can see on the top, and again, for the um, urologic pathologist, you know, tiny circles, tiny glands, more apt to be cancer. And what you see is green is benign um, tissue in this lower picture. The red is malignant. So it gives you an idea of the aggressiveness of the entire specimen. It doesn't really matter where, uh, what area of your prostate cancer you're looking at. Once again, there have been validating studies um, you know, on, on this, multiple uh, patients and into the thousands. And again, it follows the same process. You come up with an idea, you come up with your endpoint, um, then validate the test at multiple institutions, and then apply that in our field. So right now, Promark has been shown, like a lot of these tests, to move the needle. It's going to shift your needle in general uh, toward active surveillance, I would say, overall, usually in the 15 to 30 um, percent range, which I think we can all agree is sort of our goal as we've been over-treating prostate cancer for a long time. But we want to pick the right um, test to determine what is the right um, person to undergo treatment or active surveillance. 
So the ProMark report, again, these are more marketing people than it is uh, scientists, but it is easy to interpret. It's personalized for the patient, and it can be used as a standalone or in combination with NCCN risk categories. So here's a gentleman, grade group two disease, T1C, favorable intermediate risk, and he's considering treatment or active surveillance. Has a ProMark score of 58, his risk of aggressive disease is 35%. And when you combine it with NCCN risk, it's 38%. So that's a gentleman that would probably choose a definitive therapy. If you look overall, uh, the average risk based on biopsy alone of a patient having aggressive disease of prostatectomy is about 27%. But when you throw Promark into the equation, you can see you get a continuum from a low as about 8% to a high of about 58%. And then we can look at curves like this for every single NCCN risk group. So very low risk, 11% chance of adverse pathology at surgery. And then you have a continuum shown here. So not a big spread, which is why very low risk patients really don't see a lot of utility, I think, um, from genomic testing. That's why it's not recommended in the NCCN guidelines. But when you look at low risk, you start to see more of a spread. Intermediate risk, even more of a spread. And I will also uh, encourage everyone to note how many patients are sort of toward the left, you know, sort of below the average. So again, the idea is move the needle. And if you look at a practice that wasn't using a test like Promark, and you look at their rates of active surveillance versus definitive therapy, and then look at their practice patterns once they incorporate one of these tests, again, the needle shifts, tends to shift more toward active surveillance. Real world, these are patients tested with Promark since January 2015. And these are low-risk patients, and that's 67% of the patients tested. So about 55% of the patients are going to have lower-risk features. It's in keeping with their NCCN risk. But 15% are going to have high-risk features. Those are patients you might want to reconsider uh, definitive therapy for. And when you look at favorable intermediate risk disease, same sort of idea. 35% are going to have lower-risk features but about 30% are gonna have high risk features. So again, sort of transitioning your ideas away from active surveillance and toward definitive therapy for this select group of men. So uh, with that, we're gonna keep this theme going, talking about uh, genomics at the time of a diagnosis of a localized prostate cancer. I'm gonna turn the virtual podium over to Dr. Lin. Hi, uh, and thank you very much uh, for that introduction. And uh, thanks to the organizers for inviting me and, and uh, having us have this panel. I want to uh, just call out Barbara Schubert, Aaron Nichols, Katie Fulbright, and Sarah Hardy for really uh, doing a lot of great work and making sure we're all on time and everything's in order and the AUA Office of Education, of course. And our fearless leader, Dr. Wagner, who's uh, navigated us through this kickoff weekend. Uh, my job is to tell you about two other platforms, that being Prolaris and Oncotype. Um, and I think that I'll, I'll go along the similar themes here with regards to uh, how we can use them practically, um, what we get out of the reports. And then um, as Dr. Wagner presented initially, 
what are the what are the works that really the the studies that really have established these two platforms as useful within your clinical practice? And again, I encourage everyone to to uh, put things into this into the chat, and so we can answer questions. We're looking forward to a case a little bit later uh, today. So, um, with regards to uh, these two platforms, the first thing that I always put up. Um, is this, and I say this is the challenge, and this is, it says it's a breast cancer guideline, and why would I put up a breast cancer guideline at the AUA uh, kickoff weekend for prostate cancer? Because I think that breast cancer is a model for, for us and what we do um, in prostate, because breast cancer is a little bit more fortunate than we are in terms of bowel markers. They've really done some amazing studies, and they're also um, they have the luxury of having something like hormone receptor positivity or negativity, negativity, which determines how they treat their patients. And you, again, as I put here, there's hormone receptor status or HER2 status, and there's even this 21 gene RTPCR assay and zonkotype breast, which determines and really dictates therapy. I mean, it's on the NCCN guidelines as a uh, strongly consider. And then it determines where they get adjuvant chemotherapy, adjuvant hormonal therapy. And when you look at uh, uh, what we have, it's much different. Uh, breast cancer also has a, a, a major trial. This is called the Taylor RX trial, which was a few years ago, really showing the utility in saving chemotherapy in many women uh, with localized breast cancer. Again, I put up our guidelines this is the NCCN, but the AUA has guidelines as well. In, in patients who have, let's say, adverse pathology, and that's those men right there in the middle after prostatectomy, or uh, in the favorable intermediate risk group, again, men who have had prostatectomy, who have adverse features, even node positive disease. And there's no biomarker on this page at all. So this is really the charge that we have. This is what I consider to be the challenge for prostate cancers to now find biomarkers that can dictate what we do, um, that have the data to back it up, and many of us, uh, again, are, are, are trying to put this forward. So the two that I'm gonna talk about are the, the Perlaris platform and then the Oncotype one. And I'll walk through these really quickly uh, for sakes of time. Uh, the Perlaris uh, was one of the first, first to market. Uh, it was based on the biopsy tissue. So, uh, so the tissue from, from the biopsy specimen itself. And then there are multiple endpoints. And again, you've heard about these before and Dr. Wagner had a great introduction regarding the utility of these bio, but these endpoints. They're like death from prostate cancer or recurrence after cancer. There's even some decision-making studies that are really uh, interesting, and I'm going to show those right now. I'd say this is probably the one of the seminal articles, and this was written by, by Matt Gutenberg, the previous speaker on this panel, and it really uh, shows, I think, the utility of both this assay, and I'll show you a similar one for Oncotype. And I'll have you concentrate on the, the figure here on, on your right. Um, this is down here is something called CAPRA-S prediction of recurrence. And that would be uh, um, just with clinical variables. So uh, let's take a low risk man. A low risk man would be down here and the chance of having a recurrence after prostatectomy would be low. And this is a patient of yours, you've taken their prostate out. They look like they have low risk of recurrence down here in the 10, 15, 20% range. But if you add the Prolaris score here, then they become one of these little dots, okay? And if you can see, if you can tell a man initially without Prolaris that he might have a 10 to 15% chance of recurrence, but if you uh, use a Prolaris to try to understand their chance of recurrence, that this would be after prostatectomy, then you can really stratify them much larger to even as high as a 30% chance is down to less than 5%. And this is really the true value 
of a biomarker that adds on top of, as Matt said earlier today, what we already know, what's free to us, their clinical uh, information. And this is the test result. And again, you heard it from all of us saying, these are probably more marketing than anything, although, and this is, I will say an older test result, but it shows the same things. And for sake of uh, sakes of time and ease, I just wanna present uh, what is on the report and what's on the report are several variables. There is that, and I think that, um, uh, Dr. Wagner called it the American curve, which I've, I've not heard of before, but that's like where they are in comparison to the rest of people like them. And that is what we call the U.S. distribution so, or the uh, a percentile. So in this case, 20th percentile would be kind of amongst patients like this. And this is a low risk patients, patient. It's the 20th percentile. In other words, most people are, are worse cancers within low risk. And you kind of want to be uh, at least for low risk prostate cancer down low. The other information on the report are, are the typical mortality risk and metastasis risk, which almost universally are single, low single digits. In a low risk man, it's you know, less than 1% for metastasis and mortality is about 1.3 over 10 years. The interesting thing about this report is there is something called an active surveillance threshold. So if they're within the threshold, then they would be someone that could be in active surveillance. Um, and then maybe if they're higher than that, it would not be someone that we would necessarily recommend uh, for active surveillance. Getting to uh, that, how we came up with that, and actually I was part of this study that we looked at a very large group of, of men in training set, so to speak, there was almost 2000, that we looked at how they did over time, uh, which men that started on surveillance or even some watchful waiting, but mostly surveillance, who had no death from prostate cancer, and then we validated that in a cohort. And I'm just gonna show one slide because I think it really shows um, the results. Is we had uh, men, again, who had a threshold in the, in the uh, validation cohort of less than or greater than we call 0.8 on a CCR scale. And under that, this is the gray line, you can't even see it because it's so low, there were no deaths. And over it, there were as much as 20%. Got a little criticism for that. We had another modified validation cohort which we took out all the men with high-risk disease. But again, when we drew that active surveillance threshold, we found that below the threshold, there were no deaths. And above the threshold, there were about one in 12 men who had uh, a death from prostate cancer. And that's where we drew the active surveillance threshold. And I think that is one of the benefits to this test. Prolaris has also published multiple decision-making studies. Uh, this was one of them, it was a very modest size study of about 300 patients. And they looked at how men at, before the test and after the test, did they change their, uh, their, their decisions? And, and there was definitely some changes uh, in as much as 65% uh, of them changed. And this is just another, another table showing what they did. So I'll just take one example, take pause here and say, in men with low risk prostate cancer, uh, if they thought they were gonna have an intervention, that they got the Prolaris, about uh, a quarter of them decided not to have an intervention, decided to be on active surveillance, okay? I will stop and a caveat here would be uh, that the low risk men probably should never have even considered an intervention anyway. Again, that's an AUA uh, guide, guidance statement saying that men with low risk prostate cancer should preferentially choose active surveillance as the best available care option. And so the fact that they're thinking about intervention, we, we wonder whether that's necessarily the right choice in the beginning. Uh, similarly, men with high-risk prostate cancer going from non-intervention to intervention, one would actually question why would a high-risk man even think about non-interventional strategy, unless, of course, there's comorbidities or age or something like that. There was a much larger study, and this was published by Neil Shore in, in the Journal of Urology. It was now over 1,000 patients. 
And again, saying if they had the uh, uh, Prolaris test, did they change what they did? And as much as a half did change, all right? And the majority of the change you can see here was a decrease in the intensity. So we, we think it's probably from going from something like radiation and surgery down to active surveillance. And again, uh, we can dissect out whether this really is clinically meaningful uh, or not. Uh, so my reflections, I'm gonna pause here in the middle and just say before I go to Oncotype, is the, the major question I think that we can discuss this in the question and answer is, are, are any additional tests needed in typically low risk prostate cancer? You know, the microfocal one core three, three disease. We have a wealth of randomized clinical trial data, that's PIVOT, uh, the Scandinavian data, all the active surveillance cohort data showing really universally excellent uh, outcomes in men with these tiny little bits of Gleason 6 disease. Do we need to get anything more in them? Um, I would argue that perhaps not, and it should be in, in other groups. Um, and then the last thing is, uh, the last bullet point here are, are really mortality and metastasis appropriate endpoints in low-risk prostate cancer? When, the, when it just really doesn't happen very often, like low single digits, one or 2% of the men that are low risk ever have an issue with it. And I would say that that's really uh, a significant thing we should discuss. Lastly, I'll just point you to this article. It's, it's great. It was published in uh, Journal of Clinical Oncology by Scott Egener, urologist, uh, a friend of all of ours, who uh, really did a deep dive with this panel and said, who should we do be doing these tissue markers on? And then again, I'll kind of cut to the chase is that they feel like it really should be only done in certain example scenarios. And they're right here in the middle, maybe high volume grade group one, maybe grade group one with abnormal DRE or a low volume grade group two. And we can discuss that as well. And they really put out that they're not recommended for routine use as they're not been prospectively tested. And we'll, we'll get to that at the very end. So switching gears to the last few minutes here to Oncotype uh, prostate. And the question is, what can we see in the tumor? And I think that Oncotype's done a very great job at trying to understand the field effects, so to speak. In other words, if you biopsy a prostate and you hit the cancer, is it really reflective of what's on the other side of the prostate that might've been missed? Um, and is it really accurate? I'm gonna whip through this pretty quickly. We do think that the clinical features really might not um, uh, reflect the true nature of the disease. And of course, if you, we all know this, that if you biopsy a man with placing six disease and you take his prostate out, that over half the time, it's higher grade disease. In fact, I think it's probably in contemporary series, 60, 70% of the time, there's actually a little bit more aggressive disease if, if a man only has placing six. The question is, does it really matter? Um, and so how can genomic testing help us in this arena? We also know that adverse pathology is something we don't want as urologists. I think most of us in the audience here are urologists. We don't want to have a man take a man's prostate out and find extra capsule disease or node positive or something like that. And we know that most of the men have favorable pathology after prostatectomy, but there's probably a third that don't. And of those third that don't, if you really look at the men and that are not doing well, in other words, biochemical recurrence, metastasis, and death are anything other than blue. Men with good pathology do really well. Men with poor pathology don't. And we, so we want to avoid this. We want to predict adverse pathology. It's a very key seminal point. And so Oncotype really has that as their key endpoint or their key target to try to find adverse pathology. And they've done this. And again, I'll whip through this very quickly in, in, in a, a development study. And again, uh, many of us here were involved in this. Hundreds of genes, like this says 700 and something genes, all put together and they kind of put into a bin and they said, which ones were the most important? And at the end of the day, they winnowed that down to about 300 
And then even after that, they said, which ones were the most important? And they just came out with these 17. How they come up with these 17, again, it was a very clear, pro it was a very uh, uh, a complex process, but they came out to genes that were not only involved in, in, in what we call cellular proliferation, which is based on Polaris, uh, but other aspects of, of disease biology. And then there have been a multitude of studies, several hundred patients each, uh, to really come down with how did this work. And this is the central only slide that I want you to go home with in a way about how this study works, which is similar to the Prolaris. If you were to ask, uh, if you were to ask of a calculator or somebody, what is the chance of having adverse pathology, let's say in a very low or a low risk man, we're down here. The chance of having adverse pathology is somewhere around 20 to 30%. And that's just based on clinical factors alone. But if you put them with a, uh, a study like Oncotype or a platform or a biomarker like Oncotype, then you place them along this row somewhere. So instead of telling a man that he has a 20, 25% chance of having low risk or sort of adverse pathology, they're low risk. You could tell someone that has as high as a over 50% chance or as low as a 10% chance. And again, this might change their thinking about whether they should actually go on and get a prostatectomy or stay on active surveillance. And it's it's theoretical in some ways because this is all tested on men who have already had a prostatectomy. This is not tested on men who are on active surveillance necessarily. But again, if you had a man like this, he was considered very low risk, but his chance of having adverse pathology is over 30%. Would you really put him on active surveillance? Uh, probably not. And uh, similarly, if you had a man with low risk prostate cancer, but his uh, chance of having adverse pathologies, you know, less than 10%, would you really do a surgery on him? Again, uh, uh, pro probably not. So um, just moving on, I think there's been other validation studies, this one by Kaiser. The Kaiser group have looked at um, uh, several hundred men, again, about 6,000 to start with, but they came down to 250. And again, they asked the same question, does it really predict metastasis? Does it really predict death? Um, and, the, and again, these were, these were men uh, that had prostatectomy and you look here and it really does. But, but again, these aren't necessarily all after surveillance uh, uh, patients. So I think getting uh, uh, the last thing was this issue of decision-making. So I showed you the Prolaris studies about decision-making and I showed you um, some of, uh, uh, now I'm gonna show you some of the Oncotype ones. And this was uh, a paper that was uh, published by Mark Delera at the UC Davis. Yeah, and it asked the question, if one gets a GPS test, this Oncotype test, does it improve the rates of utilization of active surveillance? And, and indeed it does. And in fact, in this, it looked, what was surprising to me was in men with low risk prostate cancer, only 37% were choosing active surveillance, which is the preferred option for men with low risk prostate cancer. But with the addition of the test, it went all the way up to 60%, which I think is very, uh, very acceptable, 60% at least of men who are eligible for active surveillance actually began active surveillance with uh, the GPS test. And I think that's a, a, an admirable uh, bump up. So in summary for the GPS, it clearly adds prognostic information beyond the conventional uh, factors. It's now been validated in, uh, as a, a predictor of metastasis and death. Again, that's following prostatectomy. That's not an active surveillance patient necessarily, um, but it does influence some management decisions, which I just showed you. I'm gonna show you the a quick slide or two of the actual report. And, and then I think that it's time uh, to move on to the next talks, but this is about the, uh, the Oncotype DX GPS report. So this is the report. Again, it shows you sort of, uh, again, prostate cancer death here, prostate cancer metastasis. As I said, for this patient, it's very low risk, low single digits. Do we really need a test to tell us this? No, because almost everybody's going to be 
down here. But what's interesting is this test does show us sort of the adverse pathology uh, uh, risk, which is again, their target. And then again, it shows us a distribution, sort of what Dr. Ryan would call the American curve a bit, where they are uh, compared to other men with low risk prostate cancer, in this case, very low, which is where you wanna be in low risk prostate cancer. I think they do show, uh, again, very other independent decisions. Again, I, I think I'll just whip through this for sakes of time, and I will also credit Dr. Wagner because many of these uh, are his slides. So the last thing um, is just I'll show you that, again, this is, there is a new report. It shows you where within uh, the risk group you are. Again, this is a low-risk patient. You don't want to be up here, meaning you have a kind of a higher oncotype test. You have less favorable. You don't want to be on that side of things. Um, and then the last thing, that I'll just uh, go to is this issue of adverse pathology. So you might have two similar patients and two similar patients of same PSA, same PSA density, same volume and so forth. This is real, this does happen, that they do fall on maybe uh, either side of that bell curve. And I tell all my, my residents, you know, life is kind of a bell-shaped curve and it depends on how steep the ends are. And, and most people are gonna be in the bell, but if you're on either side, you're either good or bad. And that's why I tell my patients as well, you know, get a test. You might be on one side of the bell-shaped curve and you're showing, you are kind of seeing this here um, in these patients. One has lower chance metastasis, one has a low chance of adverse pathology, one has a high chance of adverse pathology, but they have the same clinical characteristics. And I do think this is really the crux of how these tests uh, are meant to be used. So final take-home points, um, take-home point number one, I think that both of these tests really are independently associated with biology. There's, there's no doubt about it. When, when they've looked at all the seminal uh, works, they do risk stratify beyond those clinical variables, which as Dr. Cooperberg said, are free, you know, PSA, grade, age, race, and so forth. I think active surveillance thresholds may aid in decision-making, and I showed that for the Polaris test. Um, the clinical utility shows us some change in management. I think there's some questions about whether some of those changes are uh, really relevant changes. Um, and then there's the big caveats, which we'll probably get into in some of the Q&A, which is they haven't really been tested prospectively in men who are actively trying to figure out active surveillance or not. They've really been developed in men who have already undergone prostatectomy. There are some limited studies in active surveillance and we've taken part in those. Uh, and then uh, again, those, those, those somewhat marketing reports have mortality and metastasis and so forth. And the question is whether those really are relevant uh, for most of our patients who are deciding active surveillance or not. So um, I appreciate your time. Looking forward to the cases and uh, further discussion. I'll turn it over to Dr. Wagner. Thanks, Dan. So our last presentation of the day before case presentations, we're going to talk about using Decipher and Polaris, which we've already discussed in the localized uh, prostate cancer setting to post-prostatectomy. All right, post-prostatectomy. So you have a man who's had surgery and has some adverse clinical features. And the question is early radiation therapy or observation or someone who's developed a biochemical recurrence and you've decided on further salvage therapy, how intense should that treatment be? 
And we've already talked about the fact that we're using these traditional things like PSA, uh, grade group, stage, et cetera, to guide these decisions. This is adding another element. So without genomic testing, a bunch of men who look similar with genomic testing, some differences, and then we're separating them out into different buckets to make better treatment decisions. Again, Decipher has used metastasis as their um, endpoint uh, clinically. And then the Decipher post-prostatectomy um, report looks very similar to the biopsy report. The only thing you see up in the upper left-hand corner is it says prostate RP, and before it would have said prostate biopsy. But now your patient has had surgery, and you're looking at what is his risk of metastasis at five and 10 years, and what's his prostate cancer mortality at 15 years. And then you get a decipher score, zero to 1.0 to help you with your decisions. So again, an accurate predictor of metastasis does better than our traditional um, clinical parameters. So on the left-hand side of the slide, patients had a radical prostatectomy and you're seeing him at his post-operative visit and going over his pathology report with him and talking about adjuvant treatment versus early salvage versus salvage. And you discuss Decipher to help him make a decision on whether or not he wants to observe this or undergo adjuvant radiation therapy if you believe in adjuvant radiation therapy. Or it's a few years later and the PSA's um, gone up and now you're trying to decide on uh, salvage therapy. And he's decided that's what he wants, but do you do radiation therapy alone or radiation therapy with androgen deprivation therapy? Again, bunch of studies uh, looking at Decipher in, in, in these areas and deciding the, um, the timing of treatment. So again, radical prostatectomy, if you have a um, Decipher score, you'll find that you have more patients undergoing adjuvant therapy and often your PSA recurrence threshold is going to be lower. I'm going to show a few studies uh, highlighting that in a bit. So this is the main uh, study that came out from DEN at um, Jefferson in 2015. And what they did is they separated out their patients into low and intermediate risk decipher scores and then high risk decipher scores. High risk is 0.60 and above. And what they found in the low and intermediate risk group was it didn't matter if you radiated those patients with a low PSA, so either adjuvantly with a PSA of undetectable or up to 0.20, or if you waited until the traditional threshold of 0.20. But if they had a high uh, decipher score, the patients that had radiation before their PSA hit 0.20 did better. There was an 80% reduction um, in developing metastasis in that group. So this is looking at it in a um, slightly um, different way. And in this study, also out of Jefferson, what they did is they looked at the Decipher score, and if they had a lower intermediate risk score based on their prior studies, they recommended that that patient just observe their situation. Now, some of those patients followed that recommendation, some didn't. If they had a lower intermediate risk Decipher score, uh, it didn't really matter if they were observed or got radiation. But on the right-hand side of this slide, what you see is if the patients with a high-risk decipher score didn't follow the recommendation and just observed things, they had a higher rate of metastasis, you know, a difference of about 15% or so. 
And there are some ongoing studies now uh, looking at the timing of treatment. And what they're showing is that when you incorporate Decipher into your practice, it's apt to change your practice patterns on when you and if you uh, recommend these salvage therapies. So this is a study that we um, just had accepted at the World Journal of Urology, and I took 203 post-prostatectomy patients with adverse pathology. And my practice is a little bit different. If you talk to the folks at Decipher, what they'll tell you is if you order a Decipher score on your post-prostatectomy patients, what you'll find is that 40% of the time, they will have a high risk score, but 60% of the time they'll have a lower or intermediate risk score. I'm the complete opposite. So for whatever reason, I have about a 63% high risk score. About half of those patients developed a PSA recurrence at 20 months. And we defined a biochemical recurrence as any detectable PSA. So we were really strict in our definition of a recurrence. But what we found in our practice was if you had a high decipher score, you were more apt to go undergo early radiation therapy before that traditional threshold of 0.20. And that a high decipher score was also associated with um, salvage radiation therapy at the traditional threshold. So it did seem to be impacting our practice patterns. We were radiating men with a lower PSA. Right now, about 85% of the patients radiated in our practice post-prostatectomy are radiated with a PSA of less than 0.20. So here's a gentleman, you've done surgery on him and he had extra capsular extension, grade group two disease, but a low decipher score, probably gonna sit tight on that gentleman. Whereas this gentleman, you might be more apt to consider adjuvant radiation therapy. Or again, if you're not sold on that, I personally, uh, I'm undecided, uh, certainly earlier salvage radiation therapy. So now post-treatment intensification. So radical prostatectomy, PSA is starting to go up. You've decided this gentleman is a good candidate for salvage therapy. Is he going to get radiation therapy alone or radiation therapy with ADT? So I think this was a great study. Um, I can tell you personally that I changed my practice patterns based on RTOG 9601. And for my men that were getting salvage radiation therapy, I was incorporating androgen deprivation therapy based on this trial. So they did a study and took all those men retrospectively, and they uh, did decipher scores on them. And what they found was, if you had a high decipher score, that those men had improved rates of metastasis, prostate cancer-specific mortality, and overall survival outcomes uh, with radiation therapy and ADT. But if you had a low-risk decipher score, there was minimal benefit and actually a decrease in overall survival. And again, RTOG 9601 randomized patients to radiation alone to radiation versus uh, radiation plus ADT. So here's a gentleman, biochemical recurrence two years after a radical prostatectomy. Uh, his post-op PSA 0.25, positive surgical margins, but a low, um, low risk decipher. That's a gentleman you might wanna consider radiation alone for. Uh, but somebody with a higher um, PSA probably adds some ADT. So again, this is the um, European urology sort of review, a bunch of studies going on with Decipher. But right now in the NCCN guidelines, Decipher is the only test um, that they're asking us to consider uh, when you're discussing early radiation post-radical prostatectomy and 
it's the only assay that can be used with PSA um, doubling time, et cetera, et cetera, when you're dealing with a PSA recurrence. So to summarize everything, post-prostatectomy initially, are you going to observe the patient or offer them adjuvant radiation therapy? And then at the time of recurrence, radiation alone or radiation versus ADT. Decipher can help you with these decisions. So Prolaris, um, Dr. Lynn already showed us this report. Uh, the post-prostatectomy report is very um, similar. It gives you an individual cancer-aggressive um, uh, scale. A Prolaris molecular score, again, gives you a U.S. distribution um, bell curve. And it's a clinically evaluated 10-year risk of biochemical recurrence. So that was the endpoint here versus metastasis with the cipher and also incorporates clinical features with CAPRA-S. Again, bunch of validating studies have been done at multiple institutions um, looking at this. And what it showed was in the val early validation studies, and this is from Dr. Cooperberg, that the cell cycle progression did predict um, biochemical recurrence. You can improve that by adding CAPRA-S. And when you look at the CCR, which incorporates the CCP, the clinical cell progression, with the clinical features, you get a cell risk or cell cycle risk. And you can see that these combined can predict uh, metastasis and death. And I think that's important because what you're seeing with a lot of these tests are um, Decipher will decide that metastasis is important. Prolaris initially decides on biochemical recurrence, Oncotype initially was adverse pathology. But what all these companies are sort of recognizing is that all this information is important and it can be important in different clinical scenarios. So we're seeing a lot of overlap and seeing a lot of people looking at these endpoints that they didn't initially look at. And I, I found it very helpful. So again, here's another validation study recently published showing that um, Prolaris um, can predict metastasis and death as does Decipher. Uh, and that's sort of, sort of more of the same. So cutoffs. When you look at um, uh, these tests, when they first come out, one thing that I struggled with was you could see these curves and get an idea that the worse the test, the higher risk of metastasis, biochemical recurrence, et cetera, et cetera. But what do I tell the guy in the office? So I'm thrilled when studies come out that, that help me with that. Dr. Lin had a great one a number of years ago with Prolaris using the 3.2 cutoff. Um, but we need, sort of needed one uh, for Prolaris as well in the post-prostatectomy setting. We have that now, I think, with a cutoff, a CCR score of 2.24. Two studies done on that, one from Swanson, one from Troc. But what you see is both of those um, curves sort of intersect around the two-point and change mark before their curves really start to rise, indicating that that's probably an appropriate cutoff for us to use. So in, in summary, Prolaris in the post-radical prostatectomy setting, it further stratifies our patients within each risk category, identifies many intermediate and high-risk patients without additional high-risk pathologic features who are at high risk for biochemical recurrence. And if you're at high risk for that, you're probably at high risk for metastasis and death. And we might wanna consider earlier therapy for those men. It's a powerful prognostic um, test. It was a dominant or co-dominate uh, prognosticator of prostate cancer biochemical recurrence, mets and death in six studies. 
So um, this is a quick smart phrase that I use when I'm meeting with my patients post-prostatectomy and they have an adverse um, pathology report. Happy to share this with anybody who's an epic, sort of self-explanatory, but the pathology goes in. And then I mention the three randomized trials. I tell them that their notes in epic and they can look at it later that support giving radiation therapy in an adjuvant setting. And I tell them the different endpoints. But then I also tell them that there are side effects with adjuvant radiation therapy. And there's a more recent study, radicals supporting early salvage radiation therapy is maybe being as good as adjuvant therapy. And after we have that discussion, we discuss the utility of tests like genomic and decipher, talk a little bit about costs, and then they let me know whether or not they wanna have the test. So um, with that, we're going to start with the uh, case presentation and uh, Dr. Lin's gonna take over the reins. Okay, great. Thanks, we're, we're in the home stretch here. And I, I have one case only, um, and I'm gonna ask for some audience participation and then the, the three of us will, will be talk, chatting as we go. Um, so this is a, um, a, a question about, and I think it will incorporate a variety of factors which you heard from the other speakers. Um, let's see, there we go. Perfect. So, um, my disclosure. So this is uh, a patient of mine that I saw now actually six years ago. He's a professor at the University of Washington and he had an elevated PSA of eight. Uh, he had followed it for a while and his PSAs were in the six to eight range. And finally he came to see me and he had a fair amount of lower urinary tract symptoms. IPSS was 22. He had good erectile function. Uh, he had the typical, some of the typical um, past medical history, he had one uh, inguinal herniorrhea many years ago. Family history, he had prostate cancer in his father, prostate cancer in his brother, he had breast cancer in his mother and his maternal aunt. Um, he took the following uh, med medications down there. And again, uh, the, the question will be, what is uh, your next steps given his history here? And um, as for your your thinking about it amongst yourselves, we can chat uh, between Dr. Wagner and Kutberg and I. I guess the, the, one of the questions that uh, a little bit related is, you know, do we need other tests now? According to your talk, Matt, would you get some form of a marker? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, of course, his occupation, the fact that he's your colleague presages <laughs> something bad happening. So I would definitely have... Uh, <laughs> Have higher suspicion. I mean, no, I mean, PSA of eight in in this age is sky high. Uh, you know, unless we have evidence he's got a 200 gram prostate, it definitely needs evaluation. Um, I actually would not necessarily get a marker here with a PSA of eight. First of all, the PSA should be verified. Uh, so you know, the PSA should be repeated to make sure this is not spurious. Make sure he doesn't have a recent UTI or anything like that. But assuming this is a true eight, he should go forward to biopsy. We can argue whether or not he should get an MRI before the biopsy to help guide the biopsy you know, and, and give us fusion capability. But if he had negative MR and a PSA 8 at this age, I would still do five. Sure. And, and again, please everyone just just uh, in the audience, feel free to put put it into uh, into the chat box and in swap card and we will be answering questions as we go. So how do you guys do getting MRIs? I really struggle here in Connecticut with coverage. I can't get an MRI on a P, uh, biopsy naive patient. How are you guys doing with that? We're variable here. I, I think it's getting better and better. It, it really is. Um, I don't do peer-to-peers. I don't want to do that because that's really hard, but so, there are some, and I think it's fairly variable, but what about you in the Bay Area, Matt? 
I would agree it's getting better. Uh, we do our, our APPs will do the peer to peer. Sometimes I can't, my blood pressure can't take it. So I don't do them myself. Um, the, um, depends how much steam I really need to blow off if I really want to talk to these guys. Um, the, uh, I, but it is getting better. I, I will say too that I don't go to the matches to support because it's a, it's frankly a rare Pyrex 5 MRI lesion that, that I can't see on a good ultrasound. So, you know, so I don't go to the mattresses for it, but I do think it's, it's nice to have that information going into the biopsy. Sure. For sakes of time, we should, um, the other question is the DRE. The DRE was a really massive prostate. That was one of the, the things in, in the chat, which I'm going to talk about now. One of the things I did want to just bring up, and this is apropos to, um, uh, to what Matt's talk was, was with this family history, would anybody get genetic testing? And, and yeah, I mean, it depends a little bit if he's diagnosed. You know, yeah. he's definitely got enough family history to warrant, right. certainly to warrant uh, germline testing. Right. You know, then the question becomes if he's got a mutation or not, do you do anything differently with him? I think, again, if the marker, if he's positive, you know, for BRCA or something, he needs a biopsy. If he's negative, he kind of needs a biopsy. So, yeah. you know, so I think he needs it. Whether you do it now or later, I think is, is sure. Uh, and I think different. that that was the point of this, of the thing was with this family history, it will come out. There is an NCCN guideline that's right now it's called breast ovarian colorectal. They're going to add prostate on that. And Heather Chang has really been a champion of that. We will have mark uh, gen genetic or germline testing uh, covered for that situation. And then as Matt showed this previously, who, if he's diagnosed, uh, should get germline testing. He chose because he, because um, uh, he's a colleague of mine and he has all the history. He decided to get a genetic test anyway, negative for any risk polymorphisms. In the chat, someone asked about the DRE. There, it's a huge prostate, 112 gram prostate. I decided not to do a MRI. He didn't want to get one done. We just discussed baseline. We would normally get one now. I think a little bit more commonly. Um, but he had a one core, uh, or sorry, two cores of, of Gleason 3.3 disease. Now, I guess the question now is, what is the next step? And so again, from the audience, please put in what you think are the next steps while we, while we chat. <laughs> biomarker or no biomarker, uh, Dr. Wagner? <laughs> yeah, so I'm a no bio, biomarker in these. Uh, in NCCN, you know, uh, recommendations, they do not recommend it for very low risk disease particularly in this guy who has a huge prostate and a low PSA density, I would not uh, recommend one. If he really wanted one and came in with, you know, his Google printout with all four of them, I would have the discussion <laughs> and get it for him if he really wanted to, but no, no recommendation. Sure. Yeah, his PSA. He's got, he's got an enormous zero, prostate zero. for his age. You know, his density is yeah. 0.07. So, yeah, 0.07. Did you, you calculate know. it too? Good. Yeah, I just did. <laughs> Matt, why don't you take the, the 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 chat one in the chat about microsatellite testing, somatic testing? Would you get uh, that? Right. So, well, microsatellite would, you know, so we're not typically testing routinely for microsatellite with any of these tests. It's a good question, uh, and that really is only going to drive advanced disease decision making anyway. There's chat about whether they should be more or less responsive to radiation therapy, but none of that is is, you know, is there. Uh, if we were going to do somatic testing here, I would tend to favor Decipher. Um, this is somebody I actually would probably push a little bit to get an MR just because I think the, the likelihood of underdiagnosis is higher given the size of the prostate. Um, but, you know, he's, I mean, this is a huge prostate for his age. He's the other thing I might think about here is putting him on Dutasteride before his surveillance biopsy. Um, mm -hmm. Regardless, I forget what his IPSS was. He showed it. Um, <laughs> it was but bad. it's going to improve the. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna improve his symptoms. It's gonna improve the the performance of the next biopsy. And this is somebody who's a who's kind of a poster child for the redeem trial, 
you know, this 25% reduction in progression, you know, he's, he's got a long surveillance track in front of him and a lot of BPH stuff over the next few decades. So five ARI probably makes sense for him. Okay, so um, he did, and I just, uh, again, the guidelines, this is the NCCN, but it's a little easier to show, but the AUA guidelines are the same thing. Active surveillance is the preferred option in this setting. I chose not to do a biomarker similar to Dr. Wagner. I think Dr. Kutenberg had in his talks as well. He's been promoting this. He actually predicted what happened. We did put him on finasteride. Here's a quick history you can see there. His PSAs dropped in half, a little, almost half. I, I biopsy MS typically. I usually biopsy at year one, at year two, and then start doing every other year biopsy. That's kind of how I do it. I think that, you know, Hopkins did it every year for many times. Toronto's every three to four years. Everybody's a little different. But you know, we run the Canary Pass study and it's at year one, at year two, and then every other year. And you can see what you, you have. I did eventually get an MRI. Um, and, uh, but again, he had low volume disease. Now I will say about almost not quite two years ago, but he has now one core of three, four disease. Next steps. So this is an unusual case and you know, Dan and I with the whole Canary group just had a paper out last year trying to personalize risk decision-making for men on surveillance. And this guy would have checked every low risk box. His density is low, his volume is high. He had a negative biopsy on surveillance. You know, yeah. everything lines up in terms of, he actually would have probably, we could run the model, but he's probably somebody that we would have given this 80 to 90% probability of non-reclassification out to four years and told you're good for a few years. So, you know, this, I would say this is a bit of a surprise finding on this, on this biopsy here. Um, I might yeah, think about him now that he's got three a little bit. His age. It's a little bit of a surprise finding. Um, I think it matters less here just because it's such low volume, but the amount of pattern four disease yeah. is important. And then you get into the, you know, would you rather be 40% pattern four with a yeah. small sliver of cancer, right? Versus yeah. a lower, you know, that gets messy, I think, but just as a, <laughs> teaching point, I think the amount of pattern four disease is important. It's low here, but I would probably order a biomarker in this, in this patient. Yeah. I, and so, also, so this is a great patient for that. What do you think? Cooper? I, I agree. Uh, we would look at, yeah. So we would look at the, the extent of pattern four in the three plus four. We'd also look at the subtype of pattern four is this cribriform or expansile cribriform. I know your pathology guys are looking at that as are ours. Um, but yeah, at, at this age, you know, I think any pattern for warrants at least consideration of a marker. I wouldn't mandate it, but I would encourage it. I think um, Dr. Wagner and Dr. Kutberg for the audience really bring up very practical, uh, relevant points about pathology and about this whole idea of percent pattern four. As you know, a three plus four can be 99% three, 1% four, all the way up to 51% three, 49% four. And those are two different beasts. And I think I would encourage you to work with your pathologist to understand that percent pattern four. We didn't really have percent pattern four until, I don't know, five or six years ago. And now they're really pre presenting it more. I didn't put it on this slide and I should have. He was 95% three, 5% four. So it was a very small volume four. We had a very academic, as you might expect, discussion about biomarkers, which he did not want to pursue because he said he's going to be in the bell-shaped curve. He knows it, he knows it. And he says he doesn't want to know. Regardless, um, we did. I bring it up, I think, for sakes of understanding what to do in favorable intermediate risk group. And again, this is just teaching for the audience. This is the guidelines. You can do anything, active surveillance or otherwise. There have been many studies that have looked at this. This is the Toronto study. The Toronto study had over 200 uh, men with intermediate risk disease. And again, when then looked at the relevant metastasis-free survival endpoint, 
if they had intermediate risk disease with the PSA less than 20, they were clearly at higher risk. And they were really adamant about it. If you look at, this is a journal urology paper, they say, we believe active surveillance uh, cannot be advocated for at least in seven outside of a research protocol. I think that's a little heavy handed, but at the same time, they're really adamant about it. This is um, a study right from, from UCSF, from your group, uh, Dr. Kuperberg's group, looking at this idea of, of, of initial active surveillance in men with at least in seven disease. And when they compared the blue, which is grade group one, to the yellow, which is grade group two, but just one core, and they, they looked at percent and so forth. But actually, when it gets up to two cores of grade group two, it did get significantly worse. And there are multiple other uh, groups promoting this idea of active surveillance being worse uh, in these men. Any other, any other comments? Because we got to wrap up. On great I'd, I'd emphasize the point about pathology and encourage everyone who is not in a center with really high volume prostate oriented pathology that you're not going to hurt anybody's feelings by getting second opinions from referral centers for pathology. These, in, in all seriousness, these, these, you know, we're talking about two millimeters of cancer, 5% pattern four. They're literally looking at one slide with like four glands on it and trying to decide is this four or not is making very subjective judgment calls about is this a sectioning artifact or are these actually fused glands? And it's not a judgment. These are you know, very experienced pathologists can very legitimately disagree about this. It is not that somebody got it wrong versus right. There is a lot of subtlety here. Um, and getting another read on this, you know, on a case like this, I think is, is a good practice. We do that. Even when it comes from a reliable referral center, we always get the slides re-reviewed. You know, folks in, in uh, community practice can use Hopkins as a referral, referral center or a local academic center. Um, it is, it's really advisable because these, these cases, you know, the 5% pattern for one millimeter, you know, one, these biologically often look quite like the three threes. And I think genomic tests level that field. Yeah. You know, it's objective. Okay. You don't have a pathologist. That's one of the advantages. A lot of totally high agree. tests come in and then we review them. By <clears throat> pathology. Great. And I, and I would argue that this, this blanket notion that we should not surveil Gleason, you know, any three plus four is, is totally outmoded in 2021. Yeah. I agree. Well, thanks so much, everybody. And we're going to go to some post-test questions now. So I'd like to thank everyone for your attendance today. I uh, hope to see you in Las Vegas in September.